Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Esther. Hathak went back and reported to Esther that Mordecai, what Mordecai had said, because Mordecai had found that there was going to be a plot to kill the Jews. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, who wanted her to intervene, he said back this answer, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. You may think it is wonderful to be a queen and have the power to influence the king to do your bidding and enjoy all of the luxuries that come with it. I tell you, not so. That is, not at first. There are many moments of loneliness when you are part of the royal family, and you must search deep inside yourself to find out what and who you really are. And if you're firm in your convictions and have surrendered your life to God, your loneliness will be lifted. Before I became queen, life was simple. I lived in the home of my cousin Mordecai. He took me into his home when I was a very little girl and raised me as if I were his own daughter. He was a kind parent, as kind as my father Abigail, I'm sure. Perhaps that is why I became kind. As a youngster, I loved playing and walking and jumping and laughing, all the simple things that any young girl would do. I suppose my first insight into danger for women was the news I'd heard about Queen Vashti. The story was told throughout the city by the servants who'd waited on the king that day. It was high noon on the seventh day of the feast in the capital of Susa, and drink was free flowing. Though none were compelled to drink, every man could do so as he wished. Most of the king's men were already half drunk. Indeed, the king, happy with the celebration, matched his guests toast for toast. Drink abused often causes humors to be selfish and irrational, and it tends to cloud decisions that otherwise might not even be made. King Ahasuerus and his princes, noblemen and officers, began discussing the wonders and beauties of life. Soon most of them were on a trail to boastfulness, heated by pride. The king, not to be outdone, bragged of the beauty of Queen Vashti. She's more beautiful than all the other royal treasures put together. After he'd spoken, he knew he must display her for all to see. He commanded his servant, fetch my wife, Queen Vashti. The praise among those with the king increased. When the servant returned, without her, silence fell. The king, slightly angered, questioned, where is the queen? She refuses to come. The queen refuses to come. 
the silence was deafening. King Ahasuerus was deeply embarrassed in front of his guests. His emotions were aflame with anger. He was the king. He had an empire that stretched from India to Ethiopia. He was the king whom all were eager to please. He was the king, accustomed to having his every wish instantly fulfilled. He was the king. In a moment of emotional disgrace, his wife had refused to do his will. His fury grew. He called those wise in the law to order around him and asked the lawyers what he should do about the queen's insulting behavior. The men were frightened that their wives would begin to disobey them if they heard of Queen Vashti's refusal to obey the king. Uh, send her away. Yes, send her away. Uh, and make it known to all the reason. So the king issued a decree that every man must take charge of his household in an orderly manner and must not permit a wife to disobey. With that, he banished Queen Vashti. It caused all women to adhere more acutely. I think the king was sorry he'd acted irrationally. After some time passed, the king needed cheering up, and he was determined to find someone more beautiful than Queen Vashti. He thought it best to collect the prettiest girls he could find and pamper them for one year like princesses, with expensive perfumes, facial creams, makeup, jewelry, and luxurious clothes. Then they would be presented to him. Not wanting to repeat the same incident as with his former queen, he set up strict regulations about when his new queen would be allowed to see him. That's how the story was told throughout the city. Within days, my life changed. The king's men came to Mordecai's household, and immediately I was chosen to go to the palace. Fortunately, Haggai, who was in charge of all the maidens, favored me. I was given a very nice room with seven maids at my beck and call. Cousin Mordecai was worried about me. Every day on his walk, he would pass the garden fence near my window, and he would be comforted by my smile and nod, with an understanding that I had obeyed his instructions not to reveal that I was Jewish. The day I was to meet the king was finally upon me. Haggai handed me a large, ornate box full of necklaces, brooches, and rings, pearls, etc., to drape in the hair, and jeweled combs to set it. I touched them, then turned to Haggai and said, I'm from an ordinary family. Why should I pretend to be rich and important? If I'm to wear any of these, then you must choose it for me. A wise look crossed his eyes, and he drew out a single strand of glistening pearls and hung it around my neck. Then he chose a simple silk dress without trim. He said it would force the king to notice my natural beauty, the kind which shone from the inside out. I didn't know what to say to him. He caused me to blush. I had to walk through several long corridors on my way to the king's apartments. I thought I was never going to get there. And then, as if I'd been thrust into the future, he was there, standing a short distance before me. His eyes locked with mine. His eyes shone brightly, and a slow, warm smile captured his kingly face. My heart pounded and fluttered and flew, and a quiet gasp escaped my lips. I knew he would look no further. He'd found his queen. The days and years of my reign passed quickly. I now understood Cousin Mordecai's teaching of Trust God, and he will do with your life as he sees fit. 
I was also beginning to understand that God puts his servants in the right time and place for doing his work. Cousin Mordecai became an officer in the Imperial Guards just inside the palace gates. One day, he overheard two of the officers planning to kill the king. He told me, I reported it, and the king's life was saved. The Imperial Record Book, a book of memorable deeds, noted that Mordecai's open ear had saved the king's life. Soon afterward, the king appointed a new chief of state to help ease any other problems that might be revealed among the king's officers. His name was Haman. An extremely proud man, he believed his worth rivaled the king's. He even wanted servants and other officials to bow down when he passed to tremble before him. All did as he demanded, for they knew his nature to be cruel and unfair. All, that is, except, yes, Cousin Mordecai. I'm a Jew. As a Jew, I cannot bow down to anyone except God. Haman was mad. He was resolved to have Mordecai hanged. His vengeance grew, and he plotted to have all Jewish people in the empire killed. The exact day it would happen would be determined by the throw of the dice, the poor, creating terror and fear among the Jews as they anticipated their own death. Haman went to the king with his plan. There is a race of people who do not obey your laws. They should be destroyed so as not to influence others in your empire. King Oswaris, having an upset stomach that day, didn't ask details, took his ring off and gave it to Haman to use as a death order. Haman commanded the governors of the province to kill all Jews, men, women, and children. Hard to believe, but at the time of the event, I knew nothing about it. No one had told me. I'd been alone in my apartment for more than 30 days. No one shared or discussed politics with me. I, I guess they assumed I was the queen and there was no need for me to know. I was forbidden to ask to see the king because of the new rule implemented after Queen Vashti's banishment. And the king had not even sent for me. A deep sadness grows in your heart when the man who chose you hasn't called upon you. Indeed, not even a message. Non-communication breeds fear and doubt and despair, and yet I was queen. I thought perhaps the king is angry with me. Perhaps he will banish me the way he did Vashti, but I spoke inside. Be still, my heart. Search for the truth. Do not let your imagination conjure up that which might be false. As I began to prepare myself for prayer to my God, a knock at the door broke my concentration. Yes? One of my servants entered. What? What? At the palace gates, in a robe of goat hair covered in ashes, cousin Mordecai? Well, hurry, go, speak with him. She returned with Haman's written orders and a message. Go to the king and tell him that you are Jewish. Plead with him to save your people. My body began to shake and my fingers trembled. I wrote a note to Mordecai. Everyone knows that the queen cannot speak with the king unless she has been asked. If any person, man or woman, enters the king's presence in the inner court, there is one law only, death. 
I could be put to death for seeking permission to see him. My worst fears were slowly taking shape and the foundations of my being uprooted. Mordecai's response was urgent. Do you think that your life will be saved just because you are the queen? If you are afraid to speak up, God can find someone else to help the Jews. You and your family will be killed. Have faith, Esther. Perhaps God has made you queen for this very reason. My heart was heavy. I felt like the loneliest person on earth. To let the king know the secret that his wife was Jewish. I resolved through many tears that I could not do it. Then, ever so softly and quietly, a voice spoke to my heart. You know the kind, I'm sure. It's that little voice that prods and prods until it is stronger and stronger and more urgent to a resounding truth that can no longer be ignored or denied. Perhaps God has made you queen for this very reason. God has made you queen for this reason. It was sweet music to my ears and raised my spirits to move forth with courage and to combat the heinous Haman with all the faculties given me by God. I whispered to my maid, tell Mordecai to gather all the Jews in the city. Ask them to pray and go without food for three days. I will do the same. Then, even though it is forbidden, I will go to the king. If I am to die for my people, then let it be so. I removed my sumptuous robes, put on sorrowful mourning, and covered my head in ashes and dung. I then prayed for three days as I had promised. Do not yield your scepter, Lord, to non-existent beings. Never let men mock at our ruin. Turn their designs against themselves and make an example of him who leads the attack on us. Remember, Lord, reveal yourself in the time of our distress. As for me, give me courage, king of gods and master of all power. Put persuasive words into my mouth when I face the lion. Change his feelings into hatred for our enemy, that the latter and all like him will be brought to their end. As for ourselves, Save us by your hand and come to my help. For I am alone and have no one but you, Lord. On the third day, I removed all signs of mourning and dressed in full splendor. I then rubbed some sweet-smelling oil on my skin and stood erect. <coughs> my body was weak, and I summoned two maids to help me, one to lean on and one to carry my train. I made my way slowly but confidently to the throne room where the king was sitting. I released the maids. My face radiated joy and love, but my heart shrank with fear. I stepped out of sight and remained in the shadows. He sensed I was there. My perfume slowly permeated the air. His head turned slightly, and just as his eye caught sight of me, I moved with caution and with humility and knelt down before him, looking at him, adoring him, fearing him. His face, afire with majesty, looked on me ablaze with anger. Then God changed his heart 
and a milder spirit encompassed his being, and I thought he saw me anew. He raised his scepter towards me, a definite sign that I need not be afraid. I touched the tip of his scepter with my fingers, and a gentle tenderness passed between us. In a velvety voice, free of distress, he spoke. What is it, Esther? For I will give you anything, even if it is one half of my kingdom. My heart pounded again, but my spirit was no longer fearful, and a force greater than myself assisted my speech. I wish for the pleasure of your company at my table this afternoon, together with Haman, your chief of state. At that moment, if he'd banished me to the ends of the earth, I knew that I would have spoken up. But his voice, ever soft, replied, yes, we would love to come. We will come as soon as we possibly can. We three did meet for dinner. I did not think I would be able to contain myself watching Haman gloating over the fact that he was eating with the king and queen. But the king's steadfastness and the look in his eyes kept my heart calm and my response to God in good favor. Well, after dinner filled the belly, the king, leaning back, said, Now tell me, Esther, what is it you wish for me to grant you? For I will give you anything. Even if it is one half of my kingdom, it is yours for the asking. I knew the time wasn't right. And I said to him, I wish for the pleasure at my table again tomorrow. If you truly want to make me happy, come. Then I will tell you. God does work in his own time and in strange ways. That night, the king couldn't sleep. And to use his time well, he read the official book of memorable deeds and discovered Mordecai's name there. What honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? None, his eunuch replied. Well, who is in the court? It just so happened that Haman was entering the outer court of the king's house to ask the king to hang Mordecai on a gallows he was having built. The king summoned Haman and asked, tell me, what is the proper way to treat a man the king wishes to honor? Well, Haman thinking the king was thinking of his deed to kill the Jews, replied, put your own royal robe on his shoulders. Place a crown on his head. Seat him upon your own horse as a prince leads him through the street, shouting, this is the way the king rewards those who win his favor. Yes, that would be marvelous, said the king. Take the robe and crown and fetch my horse. Go throughout the city, leading Mordecai the Jew upon it, shouting as loudly as you can, this is the way the king rewards those who win his favor. Mordecai. <laughs> I knew nothing of this when his majesty and Haman showed up for dinner. And when the king asked why I had invited him, I blurted out, there is a decree that all Jews are to be killed on February 28th this year. If you truly love me, save my life and the life of my people. Now he knows, I thought. But the king demanded angrily, who would order such a cruel thing? Though I was reluctant to accuse, my voice spoke softly. Haman. Haman's face turned to ashen. The king rose with a rage and went to the palace garden, feeling free and drained at the same time. I went to the golden couch. Haman approached me and begged me to save his life. In despair, he threw himself down on the couch. I raised my knees so he would not land on my feet. The king entered. What? 
Is he going to rape the queen before my eyes in my own palace? Scarcely were the words out of his mouth when a veil was thrown over the head of the shocked Haman. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, spoke up. How fortunate that at Haman's house stands a gallows on which he was going to hang Mordecai. Hang Haman on it, exclaimed the king, and they took Haman out. I began to weep raindrops. The worry and fear, the struggle for courage, and the decision for faith were all behind me. The king lifted his scepter to me, and he spoke. The king resolved to have Mordecai raised to new chief of state, and letters were to follow, allowing the Jews to defend themselves against any who might try to kill them. And loneliness was never again to enter my life. The people's mood went from mourning to rejoicing, from sorrow to joy. This festival became known as the Feast of Purim, witnessing to Mordecai's faith and Haman's vengeance. As for me, a Jewish princess, I learned to trust God. I learned that his timing is perfect. Please join me as we pray. God, we are grateful for the many gifts that you have given us as your people of faith, in particular the gifts that Natalie has shared with us. We thank you for the gift of your story of saving hope, of your persistent presence, of your transformative touch. And we pray, Lord, that today we might continue to see and consider how this story you have created for us will weave into that story that has existed throughout eternity, that story of good news, that none are lost, that all are to be saved by your love, by your faithfulness, by your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yesterday, friends, uh, our presbytery, which is our regional collection of churches, our presbytery hosted an educational event called Winterfest, and the plenary speaker there was a woman named Alexia Salvatierra. Reverend Salvatierra is a Lutheran minister, and she was there to speak about how churches could best engage with mission and with growth, and she started her talk by saying something that I had never really considered before. She talked about how she hadn't been raised with any faith, but had come to Christ through the Jesus movement of the 1970s. And she talked about how when she accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior, she accepted Jesus on the basis that Jesus was going to save her from eternal damnation, which she noted was sort of important. But then she told this story about a conversation that she had had with a friend of her daughter's when her daughter was in high school. Her daughter's friend had said to Reverend Salvatierra, I'm interested in knowing about this Jesus that you talk about. She said, I just want to see what kind of difference Jesus could make in the world. And Reverend Salvatierra said that that statement, that the friend's would know Jesus by the kind of change that Jesus made in the world really took her by surprise. Because for Reverend Sabatiera's generation, Jesus didn't change the world. 
That's not his job. His job is to reserve a place for you in heaven. But for this upcoming generation, it struck her. For this upcoming generation, as it probably had been for many other people over the years, Jesus' character would best be known, would best be understood by the kind of change that Jesus would instigate in this broken world that we all live in. I think it's really interesting. If you read the book of Esther, you see that there's not one reference to God. There are no appeals to God for God's intervention. There are no cries for the anguish of injustice. There are no prayers that praise God for his incredible work in saving the Jews. In the book of Esther, there is not one written reference to God. But as we saw today, that doesn't mean that God wasn't there. Quite the contrary, we know that God was there by the change that was inflicted in the world. Get a moment for our littlest ones to get settled. We know that God was there by the changes that took place in the story that was set apart and by the kingdom that was breaking through. We hear how Esther was crowned a queen after being given over to the courts by Mordecai, which might seem to be a bit of a strange happening if you are the only caretaker for a young girl. But it makes sense when you think about it because Esther didn't have anything else going for her. She was an orphan. She had no money to pay for a dowry. She wasn't going to make a good wife. This was an incredible opportunity, even though it might be a strange one by our standards today. And in a matter of minutes, Esther went from being on a brink of ruin, from a destiny of impoverished living, to being on the brink of having her good fortunes take over not only her future, but the future of her people. It couldn't get any better for Esther than that moment. All she had to do was just stay where she was and not rock the boat. And so when Mordecai learns of that plot to kill all of the Jews in the kingdom, and when Mordecai then petitions Esther to help, you can understand why she's conflicted. The easiest option would be for her to pretend that there was nothing that she could do. And having your life on the line is a really good excuse. There's nothing that she could do. The king didn't know that she was a Jew. She didn't have permission to get up there. She was going to die. Normally, that's good enough reason to not step in. But Mordecai, he refuses to let her excuse herself. He refuses her the privilege of thinking that she couldn't make any difference to this moment, that she couldn't change the course of how things were going. That was a privilege of hers, and he wasn't going to let her have it. He says this, do you really think you're not going to be affected by this? Regardless of what you choose to do, God is going to help us Jews. And so is your choice as to whether you're going to be a part of it or not. And what makes you think? What makes you think, Esther, that you are not God's first choice in helping to save us? Which is a really good question to us too, isn't it, friends? What makes us think 
that we are not being called to be God's first choice in pressing forward that change that Jesus affects in the world. Listen to what Paul has to say in one of his letters to the Corinthians. He says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life of faith. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. That's sort of why people don't like Paul, because he says stuff like that. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? That God deliberately chooses these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? Friends, what Paul is trying to point out to the Corinthians is that the Corinthians were wrong in the way that they thought about the world. The Corinthians still believed, just like many of us here still believe, that the world worked the way that God worked, and that God worked the way the world works. Even though they had witnessed the grace of God's hand firsthand, even though they knew that they had been trusted with this amazing good news of Jesus that had changed their lives. They still thought that God would only use people who were, you know, professional, who had the authority to be able to do something like that, who, who could perform miracles, who could preach, who could teach, who could evangelize. They thought that God would only use the professionals to bring in God's kingdom. And they, just like us, are wrong. Just like Esther. God uses the ordinaries to show the somebodies where the good news is. For all the talk we talk about God transforming his people in the world, we, like the Corinthians and like Esther, often still act as though God will only turn to us, that God will only use us as a last resort. When all the other people fail, when everyone else says they're not going to do it, well, I guess I'll use Hillary. She seems like she's not doing anything on Friday. Not that that would ever be true. We forget that as people who are claimed by God through Jesus Christ, everything in our lives has been changed. Everything. Down to our fundamental worth and our ability to impact society and to see change happen around us. Friends, God did not call us so that we could be this burden who sort of hides out of the way. God called us so that we could be his first choice as partners in making it on earth as it is in heaven. All this said, I understand why we tend to underestimate God's use of us as a vehicle for change in the world because sometimes it feels like we no longer live in miraculous times because we don't have Jesus walking around healing lepers and turning water into wine. And because these days we don't hear God calling to Moses from the mountaintop or see walls tumble down at the sound of a trumpet around Jericho. I think that we think that God won't use us as a vehicle for change in the world because most of the time it appears as though God is not active in changing the world at all. But just because we don't see it, just because God's name isn't listed in the story, just because people don't name God's work as being God's work, 
doesn't mean that God isn't doing it. And we know this is true from Esther. God was there when Vashti was dethroned. God was there that Esther could be crowned. God was there to place a woman of no history into a position of power in a hostile environment. God was there in Esther's courage that she would be spared death and be able to speak to her king. God was there all along, whether people acknowledged him or not. Either way, the world was being changed. Either way, lives were being saved. Either way, whether you attribute it to God or not, honor was being given where honor was due. So who is to say that God wasn't working in such a time as this? Friends, who is to say that God is not working in such a time as this? Who is to say that you and me are not being called as God's first choice in enacting God's kingdom here on earth? My friends, our calling is undeniable. We're going to close out listening to Paul as he writes again to the Corinthians. He says this, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Meaning chose to use our hope and our joy and our faithfulness, the things that are not to nullify the things that are like oppression and injustice and violence. God used those things so that no one may boast before him. And it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. Friends, what Paul is saying here is that the lowly things have been called into glory. The lowly people, the ones who think that they cannot enact any change or that think that any change they could enact could never be the result of God's living work within them. What is being said here is that the lowly things, the lowly people have been transformed into glory. You and me, our everyday decisions, all of them are an opportunity for God's glory and kingdom to break into the world. We have been called as God's first choice to transform this broken world into a holy kingdom, not called in spite of who we are, but called because of whose we are, one small decision at a time. So what are the small decisions you're called to this week? And will we respond to those decisions as people who don't matter? Or will we respond to them as people who are God's first choice for good news? Please pray with me. God, we are grateful for the way that you invite us to be in your presence We are grateful for the way that you continue to call us. Even though we do not feel equipped, we know, Lord, that you have not called us because we were ever prepared. You haven't called us for any other reason than we are yours. We pray, Lord, that as we go into the world, that we go in the spirit that Esther had, a spirit that is courageous, given the everyday miraculous happenings of her life, that was courageous when she chose to refuse the privilege of excusing herself from not making it her problem. May we, Lord, in turn be people who make the injustices of this world our problem. 
and who listen to your voice and follow your spirit and making it on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.